and welcome to another episode of the Enter the Bible podcast, uh, where you can get answers or at least reflections on everything you wanted to know about the Bible, but were afraid to ask. I'm Katie Langston. And I'm Catherine Schifferdecker. And we have, again, our very special guest, uh, Professor John Levinson from Harvard University. He's the Albert List Professor of Jewish Studies at Harvard. Uh, he's been there since 1988, and he's the author of many uh, great books on uh, law and covenant and the legacy of Abraham in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. He's the author also of uh, countless essays and chapters and articles. His latest book is on the love of God uh, and uh, uh, another book called Inheriting Abraham, which talks about uh, the figure of Abraham in, in uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Uh, and uh, he's, he's known for doing a really close reading of texts uh, exploring both literary and theological interpretations uh, and what we can glean from that, as well as um, putting those texts in, uh, or modern interpretations in dialogue with medieval and ancient interpretations of scripture. So thank you again uh, for being with us, Professor Levin. Thank you, thank you so much for the uh, honor of inviting me. Uh, so our question uh, for this episode is, why not discard the parts of the Bible that are troubling, like Genesis 22? Um, isn't this, and for those who don't uh, know this off the top of your head, Genesis 22 is what Christians call the, the story of the sacrifice of Isaac, and Jews call the akedah, or the binding of Isaac. Um, so isn't this simply a case of divine child abuse that God uh, uh, commands uh, Abraham to, uh, to sacrifice his child? And don't we know better now, right? Uh, so Famously, Thomas Jefferson cut out parts of the Bible that he didn't like, much of the Old Testament, <laughs> uh, if I recall. Um, so why don't we do that now? What, what, what would we lose if we cut out this story in particular? Well, a very good question. I, I get it a lot. I, I would say this. If you look at Genesis 22, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, or the sacrifice of Isaac, as Christians tend to call it, purely, exclusively through the lens of ethics, and it's a no-brainer. You need to get rid of that. God is acting unethically, uh, commanding a, a, a child murder. Uh, Abraham is, is complicit and, or actively complicit in the murder of his child until the last minute it's called off, terrorizes this poor child. Uh, so purely as an ethical lesson, if that's how you want to look at it, well, that, this, this is just uh, horrible. Uh, the question that people who see it that way, which a lot of people do, the question they need to ask is this, why is this story been revered over the millennia by traditions that sternly forbid child sacrifice? In Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, in Jeremiah, you see child sacrifice as totally forbidden and, and it's seen as emblematic of the worst type of idolatry. Yep. Why would traditions that inherited those texts have continued to revere Abraham and to celebrate him as a positive figure and, and specifically demonstrating what a positive figure he is in this particular event. Clearly, they're not reading it exclusively through the lens of, of ethics. They're not seeing it as a, a lesson in how to behave. It's not like everyone's supposed to do what Abraham did in a sense, you know, all men are supposed to pass off their wives as their sisters, right? <laughs> it's, uh, or go to war against four invading kings. I mean, in other words, uh, that I think is a very simplistic way to, to read the, uh, the story. Um, as I see it, the point is not uh, in, in uh, the Akedah really has nothing to do with murder 
it's not even really about killing. It, the dynamic is giving versus withholding. Will Abraham donate? Will he give his son sacrificially? Or will he withhold his son? And it's because he didn't withhold his son. Lo you did not hold your son, your beloved son. That's why he's given these, these blessings. In other words, will he act sacrificially? The way, the way I put it is this, uh, and I'm building on some ancient sources, including in the Book of Jubilees, a Jewish book for the mid uh, second century BCE, which some people call sectarian, uh, but I don't know. I think in Second Temple times, Jews had a lot more sex than they have today. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and then also in rabbinic tradition, you also have this notion that it's a test of Abraham. Whom does he love more, God or Isaac? Mm-hmm. Put it differently, if I were offered to, God said, you get up and go, go, go some other country. I'll give you that country. I'll make you rich and powerful. I'll make you a blessing. I'll richly bless you. I'll bless everybody who blesses you. Anybody who curses you, I'll curse him. You know, you know what? I'd do it. That sounds great. That sounds like a great deal. What do I lose, right? Uh, that's what Abraham's life has been like to some degree up to this point. In other words, uh, he's kind of a Pavlovian dog. Uh, does, does Pavlov, does his name Pavlov ring any bells? Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but, but, uh, but uh, you know, he's always been rewarded. What if instead of being promised things that he'll get, like a land, a great nation, rich blessing, what if in fact he has to give up? What if he has to act sacrificially? Uh, uh, will he still follow? Mm-hmm. Right? And so the book of Jubilees prefaces a kind of adaptation of the first two chapters of Job, where the Satan, the Satan, the adversary in the heavenly council, not a devil, but an adversary, but a kind of prosecuting attorney or attorney general in the divine council, uh, raises a good question on Job. Well, has he done it? Bechinam, has he done it for nothing? You've always protected mm-hmm. him. It's always paid off. The righteousness mm-hmm. is always paid off. Mm-hmm. So here, the, the, the language of Genesis 22 is not the language of killing, of murder. It's not intended to justify anything like killing or murder or child abuse. The language there is the language of sacrifice. Aleho ola, make him into a burnt offering, right? That's saying to slay sacrificially his son. So I think that key act of sacrifice, which is very hard for us moderns to relate to, that I think is the key to the meaning of this story. Uh, the way I like to put it is this. Uh, I think the story of Abraham in Genesis begins in a Lutheran mode. It <laughs> begins by grace alone. Yeah. Abraham has a bolt out of the blue with no antecedent history to motivate this, is given all these rich promises in chapter 12, right? It's pure grace. There's no no merit. Now, the problem is with grace is, well, how do you just differentiate that from arbitrariness? God chooses this one, doesn't choose that one, right? Mm -hmm. Neither person deserves to get the good thing. This one gets it, that one doesn't. How how do you, that looks like a tyrant. That looks like a despot. at the end of Genesis 22, the Akedah, this, this, the uh, story has come full circle. Now Abraham has promised the same things, land, progeny, blessing. He's promised the same things. This is Genesis 22, 15 through 18. But now they're predicated on his obedience, his, his, uh, his listening to the divine command in the Akedah. Now it's conjoint 
works and grace working in, 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 in tandem is no longer pure arbitrariness. And the election of Israel in the Jewish mode and the election of the church in the Christian mode, both are kind of reworkings, midrashic reworkings of those promises to Abraham, which are not arbitrary or mindless, but neither are they just the result of human merit or human works. They're, they're a kind of indistinguishable mixture of grace and works together, of Abraham's, of God's generosity and initiative and Abraham's obedience on the other. So I think that provides a basis for rich theological reading, which I think is, is much to be preferred to the kind of no-brainer, oh, this is unethical, he's going to kill people, shouldn't go out and kill your innocent child, don't be a child abuser. Uh, I think there are a lot of other things wrong with reading this as a story of, of child abuse also, but uh, I really think that that is uh, the deeper meaning of the Akedah of the Pine of Isaac and why it's such a, a seminal text that's reworked in, in Jewish and Christian re readings over the centuries. It becomes very influential on the whole understanding of worship in Judaism, on the ideas of chutavot, the uh, merit of the patriarchs. So when the Jews are in trouble, as Jews have usually been, and subjected to persecution or whatever, uh, and they don't have merits, good deeds to plead in their own behalf, they can appeal to the merits of the patriarch, meaning the action, especially the action of Abraham at the Agadah, a very important Rosh Hashanah, the fall Jewish New Year's festival. And it's also very, very influential on the, uh, the an early Christology and on, I think, even on the Gospels themselves, which in some ways are, are patterned on this. I mean, a Christian could ask the question, could we ask of the Christian scriptures, well, isn't God, in effect, a divine child abuser? In, 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 uh, in effect, setting up a providential drama in which his only begotten son will, be, will die a gruesome, painful death. Isn't that, uh, isn't that an, odd, uh, an odd thing? I once was a, at a session where a, uh, a, actually a Christian seminary professor, I won't name the man, a prominent and, and knowledgeable person, certainly, uh, said one of the worst things is Abraham never asked Sarah's permission he never asked the mother of this child's permission to go out and, and, and sacrifice her son. Uh, to which I said, there's a point to that. In the New Testament, does God ask Mary's permission? Hmm. He, looked, he looked shocked at the way he never thought of it that way, right? Yeah. They're both kind of, it might be a little bit off the subject there. But, uh, but uh, therefore, I, I think that a lot would be lost if this text were to be excised. And one of the things that would be lost would be a rich intertextual um, theological reading, as opposed to a, a I think, simple-minded, moralistic Sunday school reading. Oh, don't do this. Don't don't murder your child. Well, we I I will share. You know, I grew up in a tradition that was fairly literalistic about uh, lots of the texts, and I do remember the takeaway being: be willing to do anything God asks, even mm -hmm. murdering your child. So that wasn't always great. Yeah, I mean, let's do it this way. If the tradition you inherit includes prohibitions on child sacrifice and on murder, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I think all your listeners will know, the Hebrew Bible forbids those things, then clearly the takeaway to would be, yes, radical obedience, yeah. and not just doing what one wants or acting out one's own values and pretending one's obeying the will of God when all you're doing is acting out your own values. That, I think, is legitimate, but it would not involve uh, murdering one's one's uh, a child. 
I, I do think this. Uh, I do think there's something to be said for the idea that Abraham engages in a kind of radical obedience mm-hmm. that does not involve a calculus of of his own personal values. I, I think it's rather obvious he'd rather not be doing this. It's the son whom he loves. The text makes that right. explicit. His whole life is that's it. that's the other thing people miss that the whole uh, story is bound up with the narratives of, of Abraham. The, the words we told to go forth to this land of Moriah. It's lech lecha. The only other place those two words occur in that construction in the Hebrew Bible are at the beginning of Genesis 12, where God says, "Get up and go, leave your your father's household, and so forth." Uh, so the uh, uh, it's embedded in a particular narrative of Abraham and Isaac that isn't just reproducible in any father, any mother, and any child. That doesn't work that way. It's more it's right. more complicated than that. Uh, st- plucking it loose from the, the the literary context, I think, causes the text to be radically misunderstood. Abraham isn't every man. Isaac isn't just isn't a victim of abuse. It's it, it's something very different from that. So uh, there's there's been, as you say, a lot of voices uh, kind of against this text, and I and I agree with you that it's often kind of an or, overly moralistic, overly simplistic reading. Um, you know, some people say, well, it's it's just a, a tale to show the replacement of child sacrifice uh, with animal sacrifice, right? That, I just uh, address that for 30 seconds? Yeah, go for it. Uh, if the idea is God doesn't like human sacrifice, why does he reward Abraham for being willing to commit a human sacrifice? Why yeah. does he bless him for his willingness to commit a human sacrifice? The uh, That's a very odd way of forbidding something, uh, yeah. saying, hey, it's great you were willing to do it. Uh, the uh, I think that that's really uh, off the subject. What the text of Genesis 22 says it is, is a test of his fear of God, which doesn't mean fear of punishment or being frightened to death. It has to do with reverence for divine commands and, and obedience. I, but that I was think, an interruption, I'm sorry. No, 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 that's fine, that's fine. Another thing I've heard is, well, of course, um, God knows what's gonna happen, right? And yet, you know, he knows what Abraham is gonna do. So it's, uh, it's a test of Abraham, but but I'm curious at the at the end of the story, I think you know around verse 14 or whatever, God or maybe 15, God says, "Now I know right. the angel of God. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me." Do you think this does the story assume that God knows how it's going to end, or is it a real test in the sense of God's God's um, in a strange kind of way, counting on Abraham to, to do something. Yeah, very, very fine question. Uh, well, uh, in my opinion, a God who's ignorant of some things is not much of a God. So classically, Judaism and Christianity and Islam have all affirmed divine omniscience. God really knows everything, including the future. But I think it's dangerous to read that into Genesis 22 for exactly the reason you said, Atayadati, now I know that you fear God. Yeah. You can even see in some of the medieval interpretations on the medieval exegetes, try to say, well, don't read as if yadati, read as if it were yidati, now I've made known, hodati, I've declared, some other uh, stem of the same Hebrew root, such that it doesn't imply that God has acquired knowledge he didn't have before. But I think that there is some sense in Genesis 22 in which he's acquiring knowledge that he didn't, didn't have before. And I think that's what divine testing is all about. I mean, I alluded to Job a moment ago. Yes, why does God? Parallels. Why does God? Yeah. Why does God uh, subject Job to such terrible loss and torture? 
uh, to find something out that he doesn't know already? And why does the Satan, the Satan, the Attorney General, Special Prosecutor in the Divine Assembly, why does he uh, not just immediately say, God, well, say to God, well, you obviously know the answer to this. What is it? Is, is he serving out of self-interest or not? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the answer is that uh, these texts presuppose a relational, personal, interactive God mm -hmm. who, uh, who therefore, uh, like persons in general, uh, can learn. Yeah. What, why doesn't Abraham argue? I, I know the rabbis struggled with this and there's a midrash about it, but you know, back in Genesis 18, of course, Abraham argues with God when God wants to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham famously, you know, argues God down to, if there are 10 righteous people in the city, <laughs> yeah. you know, will you destroy it? Why doesn't, why doesn't Abraham do that here for his beloved son? Uh, it's a very good question. I actually, it's a very perceptive question and I'm asked it a lot. My answer is, in Genesis 18, he's protesting an injustice. He thinks, I'm not so sure there's a real textual basis for him to think this, but he thinks, Abraham thinks, that God is going to destroy the innocent along with the guilty. The God has not actually said that. Uh, and uh, it turns out there are no innocent, uh, which maybe God knew all along. But anyway, uh, the, so it's an injustice, and the, and the context is forensic. It's like a law court. I'm going to stand up for the innocent, how dare you destroy the innocent along with the guilty? Although the way it works out, God agrees to spare the guilty the whole entire town mm. if, in fact, Abraham can turn up a righteous minority, which turns out not to exist. In Genesis 22, the context isn't forensic. It isn't a question. It's not justice. Uh, in a certain sense, sacrifice is the opposite of a forensic issue focused on justice. I mean, sacrifice... The victim is supposed to be pure and complete. Uh, Isaac is not being punished for something. It's not capital punishment. Uh, the, the sacrificial victim is supposed to be uh, innocent and pure. And Abraham is being asked himself to give something up. He's not standing up for someone else. He's, mm -hmm. asked, he's, asked, he's commanded to give up something of his own. And that's which is dearest to him. And that which is... is uh, on which he's based his entire life. Right. All his obedience focuses on this son. We now know this is the chosen son. This is the son through which the promise to Abraham will be realized of a great nation. And now he's told, he's told to sacrifice the uh, childless uh, Isaac. You know, uh, infertility is hereditary. If your parents didn't have any children, you won't either. <laughs> if Isaac doesn't have any children, Abraham's not going to have any grandchildren, at least in the line that we now know from the previous chapter is supposed to be the chosen line. So it's a self-sacrifice. It doesn't make sense to say it's unjust to ask me to engage in self-sacrifice. The whole axis in which that takes place, the whole framework is not one of justice. And so for him to protest that this is unjust, well, every sacrifice is a sense is unjust. It's a donation. It's a gift. It's not required. It's not a fine. It's not something that you're required as an act of justice to, to do. So I really think there, there really isn't a, a, a contradiction there. The people uh, usually think there is. Yeah. The, the idea of sacrifice is not obviously uh, foreign to Christianity either. I mean, I think, I think about passages like in the Gospels where Jesus says, if you, if you don't hate your mother and father, or your brother or sister, um, you know, you, you can't be my disciple. Now, of course, there's hyperbole there, right? right. Uh, but, but there is also this, you know, this call to, um, to love God above all other uh, loves. 
right? right. And to, to take up your cross and follow me. Uh, there's, uh, it's it's anti, like, I'm sure that prosperity gospel preachers mm -hmm. don't ever talk about this text, right? No. Because it, it, being a follower of God, being one of the elect or, or the chosen or being a disciple of Christ, right? Uh, the Bible doesn't portray any of that as easy. It's it's no. quite the opposite. Right, that's right. I mean, I think that text where is in Matthew, where he says tells his followers to uh, expect persecution. Right. 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 So uh, so that's absolutely right. And uh, I, the way I like to put it is, I don't know who first uh, wrote, said this that anyone can believe in God when violins are playing, when things mm. are going well. You yeah. want to bless God. The question is, uh, what happens when things aren't going well? Do you then curse God? Do you then do you then move into a different uh, mode of being? Uh, uh, is it just a self-interested calculation, you know, cause-benefit analysis, or is it something more radical? I think the Akita calls for something more more radical. Uh, you know, um, in a midrashic book, a book of biblical interpretation of the Book of Leviticus called Sifra, around the third century, put together around the third century of the Common Era, it, it makes a, a uh, a fascinating statement about what the holiness of the Jewish people means. And what it says is, a Jew should not say about forbidden sexual acts or forbidden foods, I can't stand the thought of it. it's disgusting, I don't wanna do that. A Jew is supposed to say, you know, I'd like to try that. That sounds kind of fun. I would like to try that forbidden sexual thing. I would like to try that forbidden food, but avisha b'shemayim gazar alai, but my father who is in heaven has made a decree uh, on me about it. And uh, in other words, there's an, it's, it's, it's a decree of a king and the kingship of God and, and, and genuine uh, servanthood of God, or as Christians might say, discipleship, requires some uh, affirmation of, uh, of radical obedience uh, and not just interposing one's own values and saying, well, I, I really don't like that, it doesn't appeal to me, it's, it's not, not to my uh, to my liking, you know. Uh, uh, that's uh, those that concern with only with values is in considerable tension with the notion of a commanding God and a God who is a king and a God who gives decrees. So people who have problems with this text actually have a problem with much much more in Judaism and Christianity, much much more in the in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament than they think they do. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it, but oh, I also ahead. think it helps, you know. I mean, I will say, like, I know a lot of people who will cite these kinds of texts, to, to your point, Professor Levinson, as reasons why they're atheists, right? right? They're like, I can't believe in a God that would require something like that. I can't believe in a God that would command something like that. And so I, I do think there's a sense or, or um, you know, there's a way in which it's, it's important to continually wrestle with the text and, and and, and the minute you feel like you've kind of solved it, you know, th this is a paradoxical text. The thing right. that, that, that God commands Abraham is itself a paradox, right? Uh, in order to receive the blessing of posterity, you have to kill the son that would bring forth the posterity. So, so there's a I paradox. Just, can, I amend, can I just amend your sentence very slightly? Yeah. Being a textual scholar, I'm interested in emendations. I don't think he's, he's going to kill, he's going to give up going to mm -hmm. sacrifice, which does result in Isaac's death. Sure. Isaac's death, but okay. a sacrificial death is different from saying, the story would be different. I, I, I see your question, which yeah. I, I think you're right. It's something to be wrestled with. 
there are no pat answers. Right. You're not troubled by it. There's probably something wrong with you. Right. But uh, imagine the story were different. Imagine God said to Abraham, uh, Isaac is sleeping in the next room. Carefully pick up your pillow, walk very softly into the room, put the pillow over his face and smother him to death, right? That's how people often sort of treat it. Yeah. That's totally non-sacrificially. Nothing to do with an altar, nothing about offering to anybody, uh -huh. right? It's not, it's not a sacrifice at all. It's just, just go ahead and kill him. When people say kill, that, that's the sort of thing I think of, whereas this is, this is radically different. But it's certainly true, the story is paradoxical, and you've hit exactly the key point that in order to have the posterity, he's willing to give up the posterity. I mean, right. he's not genuinely willing to give up the posterity. He's not going to have the posterity. You know, the posterity comes out of a radical commitment, a radical obedience to God. And without the radical obedience, now we know we're just talking about looking out for number one, self-interested, cost-benefit calculation rather than something much more fundamental. And to your point that some people say they can't believe in God because of this, I respect that. In some ways, I respect that more than people say, oh, I deeply believe in God, but I, I hate this text. It's just disgusting hmm. that God would do it. That's not my values. That's really interesting. I mean, I mean the interesting question is, which, which one, the, 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 the serious atheist who cannot deal with the idea of a God who, is a, who gives commandments and asks for radical obedience, is that person farther or closer to an authentic religious believer, then the person says, well, you know, I, I love, I, my religion is important to me because it expresses my values. I, I meet so many other people who have the same values I have. And, I, and as long as we're acting on our own values, that's what religion's all about. I mean, I think that's, a, that's a, a, the key question. That's, I that's interrupted you. I did No, no, I, would, I was just gonna say it draws us into paradox and, and requires us to wrestle. But what you just said reminds me actually of something that, um, uh, that Catherine in our, in her intro to New Old Testament class had us read by Ellen Davis saying that this story is, you know, is, is actually for the committed believer. Mm -hmm. It's that, that that's, you know, that, that the person who's committed to God, like th that, this is the story, this is the story for them, not necessarily for someone who's like, you know, on the fence or trying to figure it out, that this is yeah. a story about a person who's already in a relationship with God, who already has faith in God, who already has, you know, just wants to follow God's, you know, commandments and those sorts of things. This is a story that's, that sort of like tests the limits or tests the faith or, or radical obedience of the person who's already kind of in. Yeah, that's a very profound uh, observation. I think that's, exa that's exactly right. Abraham is not just every man on the street and right. God just finds this one person says, yeah, why don't you, we'll go ahead and kill your kid. I'll see whether you really uh, fear me or not. That's how it often comes across in, yeah, in common discourse, but I think yeah. that's a radical misunderstanding. Yeah. I wonder, I, I want to just, just add one more thing, and I know we're getting close to time, but in this book, I think, of, of yours, Professor Levinson, The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son, you, you spend quite a bit of time on um, the story of the Akedah, and you talk about it as a foundational story. There's a lot of kind of uh, deaths, either real or metaphorical, of beloved sons, uh, and of course, you know, for Christians, this would. Uh, and you talk about Jesus in the New Testament and the Passion story, and and this text, this um, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac or the sacrifice of Isaac, is traditionally read on Good Friday uh, right. in the church. But uh, my point was, I, I got a little sidetracked there. I think it's in this book. You say something like. You know, Isaac is a child, uh, is a miraculous child, right? They've they've waited decades uh, for Isaac's birth. Sarah is is old when, uh, and both Sarah and Abraham are old when he's born. 
And so, you know, you, you're emphasizing rightly and uh, strongly the, the idea of sacrifice, not murder, mm -hmm. that, that Abraham is asked to sacrifice, to give back to God, to give up to God, what God has given to him in the first place, right? This right. child of promise, right. this miraculous child, um, which I think is, is, is beautifully put, right? That, that it's God who gave the gift in the first place. Abraham is in a sense acknowledging uh, God's gift, God's grace, gracious gift uh, by giving Isaac back or be, being willing to give Isaac back. That's right. And the, the promise rests on Isaac and Isaac is born outside the course of nature to a woman 90 years old, to a man 100 years old. And, uh, and in spite of that long wait, that's 25 year wait is the biblical chronology would have it before Abraham has this child. Uh, nonetheless, he gets up the next morning and, and proceeds to, uh, to, to the sacrifice. We don't know what's in his head. Kierkegaard has him motivated by deep faith. Maybe we don't know that. Who knows what was going on? All we know is what he did. And what he did was prepare the altar and, and, and stretch out his hand to slay the son. And that point, and only that point, does the angel mediating God's words call it off. That's, 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 that gets back to your paradox idea, Katie. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, without recognizing the gifted nature of Isaac, uh, I, I think you, uh, you, miss, you miss what's going on here. But partly it's because everything we have is a gift. Our lives, our very existence, is none, none of this stuff we didn't generate. Uh, yeah. I can't recall anything I did before being born that uh, merited my being born. Uh, maybe that's just because I get old, my memory is failing, but you know that far back. But uh, you see, there's, there's, uh, there is a kind of element of radical grace, but the radical grace is, uh, is, uh, leads to uh, a deed that Abraham has to perform. Well, the radical grace leads to radical obedience, which I think right. even Luther would agree with that. So. Right. <laughs> Well, there, this has been just a wonderful conversation. And, you know, this is such a, this is such a, you know, foundational, important text and a difficult text. And I don't think that those things are at odds with each other. I think it's, 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 it's so foundational because it is so difficult and because it's produced centuries and millennia of conversation and wrestling and discernment and theological, you know, introspection and so on. So we could, we could certainly can't do it justice in a, in a short uh, podcast episode, but hopefully we've given, you know, just a little taste. Uh, and I just invite those of you who are listening, you know, dive in, don't be afraid, wrestle with the questions, right? Wrestle with the text, um, you know, see if, see what you can find in there uh, on your journey of faith. Um, and Enter the Bible is here to help you with that. Uh, you can get uh, more reflections, resources, courses, podcasts, videos, uh, all kinds of things at uh, enterthebible.org. Please, as well, if you uh, enjoy this podcast, please rate us and review us on uh, Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and share with a friend. And uh, until next time. <laughs>